A reading from Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through their prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he had spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The word of the Lord. Wonderful. Good morning, everybody. It is great to be back. Tim, I love you. Tim is so kind after I mocked all the cats that he had. And uh, I'm really appreciative of your grace towards me. Make America great again. It's happening this week. That's not a prediction on what's going to happen. I'm just saying the voting is happening this week. And this is a slogan that we have heard relentlessly. But if you just listen to that slogan, there is so much complexity held in that one phrase. Make America great again. Who defines what greatness is? What is a great America? In essence, there is a way that the human heart thinks life ought to be. We all have it. We all think there is a a picture of what life is supposed to be like. There is something that we are aiming at, that our hearts are yearning for, and we define it all in different ways. The greater reality is that it is not so, that life is not the way that it ought to be. And I think it is pretty easy for us to look at the news headlines. It's easy for us to look at things happening around us and affirm that life is not the way it ought to be. For goodness sake, the Cubs won the World Series. Wow, there's a few Cubs fans here I can hear. Things are not the way they ought to be. The curse of the goat has been lifted. There's another Starbucks opening in Park Slope. Things are not the way they ought to be. God created us for union with him. He created us to be perfectly loved in union with no divide between us and him. And yet we look around at our world and more intimately look at our own hearts and realize there is a great divide between us and the living God. Brokenness and sin came into this world and created a world that ought not to be so. You and I wrestle with that day after day, after day. And like I said, most intimately, I wrestle with my own heart when it comes to these things. And as you fast forward through, through the history as the Bible describes it, you get to a place where the people of God, the Israelites, were, were being fashioned and formed as those who would represent the world as it ought to be. And in the process of doing so, God developed three offices that would help the people bridge the divide between the chaos that the world is and how the world ought to be. Those three offices were the prophet, the priest, and the king. 
And in combination, those three kind of positions within the people of God, within the Israelite community, they became those who, who, who spoke the word of God, who represented God to the people and the people to God, and who governed the people in a way that said, yes, this is how God ought to govern. Now, they didn't always do a good job at it, but those offices were put into place for that very reason. And so... You've been looking at the work of Jesus, and this morning we're going to look at Jesus as prophet, because what happens as Jesus comes, he comes and fulfills all three of those offices in very particular ways, and releases us into the world to be the bridge that these offices were, to bridge the divide between the world as it is not supposed to be and the world as it is supposed to be. The question is definitely this, what is the promise? What is the world as it's supposed to be? Because we see that the world is supposed to be a certain way, our souls, our souls long for it. We see that it isn't so. We're given the three offices to make it a certain way, but we still ask the question, who defines what that is supposed to be? And you have, everybody has an agenda of what the world is when it functions best. Most of you, I would guess, believes that if, if your primary techn technological device is an iPhone, the world is as it is supposed to be. Because we've been sold the vision. Besides for the battery life, we can work on that a little bit. Most of us are sold a dream politically of how the world is supposed to be. This week, we are face-to-face -face with that. You have two candidates who are speaking very different visions of how the world is supposed to be, and I'm definitely not here to give you my perspective as a non-citizen on how the world is supposed to be. I abstain from voting because I'm not allowed to. <laughs> I wish I could vote, but I wouldn't tell you who I was voting for. We are sold a vision of what it is supposed to be. The problem is this. That the world as it is supposed to be has a, has a bigger question. The question is not, what is that world like? The question is, what is God like who created that world? So we have to get down to the, the question underneath the question. And one of the officers, very particularly, all three of them combined, speak into this reality. What is God like? Because if we understand that, and if we understand his words, and we have, if we understand how he communicates, we can then understand the world that he is trying to create. And so we ask all these deep questions. How is marriage supposed to be? How is parenting supposed to be? How is my vocation supposed to be? What is my industry supposed to look like? How do I get there? How do I work at that? But, but more deeply, Why and how is it supposed to be that way? And it boils down to this question, what is God like? It is a question we have to ask. And if somebody does not even believe in God, you may be even in this, in this room today, the question that you probably are asking being in this room is, what is your God like? What is the God who you represent and worship and love like? And the reality is you see it in us, and you're supposed to see it in us. And um, full confession, much of the time people look at Christians or the church and they go, I don't want that God. 
So let's get back to the offices and how they relate. Hebrews 1 says this. We read it. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many ways and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his power. When he had made purifications for sin, he came and sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The point of this passage and the whole of the first chapter of the book of Hebrews is this. Christ is superior. He is better. He is the better priest, the better prophet, and the better king, according to this text. And so Jesus the, um, becomes the embodiment of the offices, these three particular offices. The Old Testament prophets had three things in common. One, they were commissioned by God. There was a sense that the Spirit of God in the Old Testament was upon them, and they could speak the words of God. They were commissioned, and the Spirit of God was upon them. Two, they spoke the words of God. They didn't speak their own message. They didn't say, I think the world needs to hear this. They spoke what they heard God speak. And three, they themselves became representations of God. People looked at them and listened to them and then understood God a little bit better. Thus, they became a little bit of a bridge across the divide of the the separation between God and man. They became the bridge. The Old Testament prophets. The problem was this. They were always an imperfect picture of God to the people. They were never a full revelation. It was always progressive, always, uh, always just partial revelations to the people of God about the Word of God, about who God is and the nature of God. And so that, that problem, problem ushered in the reality of Jesus. So Jesus comes in and three things happens. One, he is commissioned by God. In Luke 3, it says this, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you're my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. And so Jesus has this commissioning moment where God gives his presence, his spirit upon Jesus for the sake of the work that is to do just as the prophets were. The second thing, Jesus spoke the word of God, not his own. He was God. But listen to John 12, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. So Jesus fulfills these categories of what makes a prophet. First, that he is commissioned. Second, that he spoke the word of God. And three, that he represented God to people. Colossians says this, one, he is the image of the invisible God. 
And so Jesus fulfills the qualifiers of being a prophet to the people of God, bridging the gap. Jesus was recognized as a prophet. He was not just self-acclaimed, even though that is important. Luke 24 says this, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is after Jesus had been raised up from the dead and these two men were walking along a road talking about the crazy things that had happened over the last couple of weeks and they're just trying to make sense of it. So Jesus comes alongside them and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with one another as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these, th- these days? He's saying, hey man, everyone knows. What's up that you don't know? Now, what he's going to be saying is that which everyone knows. He's going to now describe that which is now the accepted norm in a sense. He goes, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. Recognized as a prophet by others. Revelation 19 says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that, for I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus himself claims to be a prophet. In Luke 13, 31 to 35, it says this, At that hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. It's getting a little feisty. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day. I finish my course, prophesying his own death. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He refers to himself as a prophet that comes. Next, he was persecuted as the prophets were for he whom God, uh, John, 13, uh, John 3, 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. And John speaks these words and exalts Jesus as a prophet. John who ushers in the reality of Jesus. I could go on and on and on. It is very clear that Jesus himself, outsiders, and the criteria of, a, of the prophet says Christ was a prophet. Why is that so important? It's so, so, so important because he comes to bridge the eternal gap between the people of God and God himself by doing this. This is what the prophet did. The prophet primarily represented God to the people. And all of a sudden, in the brokenness of the world, when, when they feel far away from God, when they don't quite get Him, when they don't understand Him, you feel the same and I feel the same way. I did so this very week. It's like, God, I just don't understand this. Where are you in this? Come and meet me and show me and speak to me in these situations that I'm dealing with. That frustration of feeling far from God, but longing for him. And Jesus comes and says, I can bridge that gap. Represent God to you. And the priest, if you, if you 
going to look at it next week, is the priest represents the people of God to God. He represents it the other way. The thing with Jesus is that he was not just a prophet, and his claims were not just of being a prophet. He was actually greater than all the prophets. See, our world is okay with Jesus saying that he's a prophet. Our world is okay with us saying that Jesus is a prophet. But our world is not okay with us saying that Jesus was greater than a prophet. And the world that he lived in in that day was also not okay with that. Jesus is the greater prophet. And as we look at Hebrews chapter 1, there are two words spoken in this particular text that's really, really important to understand. It says, long ago, God spoke. That is a verb that is used that um, in the Greek, it, it in essence is speaking a continuation of revelation. It's saying God spoke, and it means he kept speaking. It was incomplete that he still had to keep speaking and speaking and speaking to reveal himself to the people. But it says, but in these days he has spoken. And the, the verb that is used there is a, is a verb that, that, that signifies completion. It signifies sufficiency. It says the speaking stops. It doesn't mean God can't ever show you a part of him anymore, but it does mean this one thing. He used the prophets to speak and speak and speak and speak and speak and speak and speak, and it was not sufficient. But when Jesus came, the verb used points to the fact that his showing of God was completely sufficient to bridge the gap between man and God, to represent God fully as man needs to understand God. And therefore, the very nature of Jesus speaking into the gap, as Hebrew ones is speaking, is this. Christ was completely sufficient. What we see in him, what we experience in him, who he is in this reality is completely sufficient for us to encounter God fully, truly, as we need to. That gap is completely closed. And to the recipients of the message, this was very, very clear. To the recipients who understood the prophets and how they saw the prophets, when they heard these phrases, they heard one of two things. They either heard the extreme joy that the insufficiency is past and they have exactly what they need right now, or they heard to what to their ears would be blasphemous if they could not see Jesus as God because he claimed to be way more than a prophet. And the author then draws, the, draws an essential chasm between the prophets and the son where the son is so much greater. And he is both, the, uh, the author of Hebrews is both uh, uh, explaining that that Jesus is equal to the prophets in the speaking, but he's completely superior, and he says that at the same time. This is how Jesus is greater than the prophets. Firstly, he is greater than, uh, two examples, he's greater than Jonah. In Matthew 12, it says this, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this, with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah 
is here. Jonah as a prophet was effective and people repented. And the claim in the New Testament is that something greater than Jonah is here. Greater than John. John. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me uh, ranks before me before, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, who was considered a great prophet. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. That phrase, Jesus brings grace upon grace means the Old Testament and the law that was given to us to show us God, to give us a mirror image of who God was, the prophet, the priest, and the king who's supposed to show us this is who God is, is now been exceeded by the grace that Jesus Christ brings. He is greater than the prophets in these five ways. One, he is the one about whom all the prophecies were made. He doesn't just make the prophecies. All the prophecies point to him. John 5, 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And Jesus points to all the words of the prophets and says, they all point to me. Secondly, he claims to be greater than a prophet. He accepts worship and he calls himself and he receives the call of being the Messiah. He says things like this. I say to you, instead of speaking like a prophet of old, which was, thus says the Lord, God says this. Jesus comes and he changes the narrative and he says, I say to you. If you read through passages like Matthew 5 and he just say, he says things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he says, you are hearing the very words of life from God himself. He was, not, he was greater than the prophet because he was not only persecuted uh, as the prophets were persecuted, but he was killed and raised from the dead. Thirdly, he was not just the messenger of the message. He was not just the speaker of the message, but he was the very source of the message as I said, he says, I say unto you. And he changes, he changes the normative accepted language and he speaks himself into being the source. Number four, he is the ultimate representation of God. And as we look at this passage in uh, Hebrews, it says this, he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. He is the exact image of God. Therefore, he answers the very deep question, what is God like? The question that is underneath the question of what is the world that we're looking for? What is the world that we're trying to create? What is the world? What is a great America again? What is a great marriage again? What is a great family? What is uh, the, the reality of living out a great singleness again? And Jesus comes and he says, I will show you what that looks like by the very image of God that he bears. And lastly, Jesus did not only interpret the law as the prophets did. One of the things the prophets did was he interpreted the law, the words of God to the people. He fulfilled the law. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come 
to fulfill them. And therefore, he is completely sufficient. He is completely good enough to display God to us. And so he becomes completely superior to the prophets of old who were supposed to bridge the gap between man and God. The two things that happen because Jesus was this, remember, he, he was commissioned by God by the Spirit of God. He spoke the words of God and he represented God in image to the people. Now let me read this passage, which is really an important transition as we start to see what that means for us. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. These are the words of Paul. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This mystery, this mystery that he's speaking of, listen, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might, be pre- pre- might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. We heard how the prophets were qualified to do the job. We heard how Christ was both qualified and superior to do the job of bridging the divide between the people of God and God himself. And now we have the mysterious reality that he says, now Christ lives in you. What does that mean? Why is that so important for how we are supposed to live out what life is supposed to be like? Well, because we're in the world and because Jesus prayed this, I do not, in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. He goes on and he says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. He's speaking about all of us, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays a remarkable prayer. Christ is now in us, Paul says, and Jesus prays that we would not be taken from the world, but we would remain in the world so that people would see the reality of God. And so in this phenomenal, mysterious, undeserving way, the anointing of the prophet that Jesus completely fulfilled gets handed down to us, and Christ is now in us. And we are now in the world, and the same call is now on us to be commissioned by God, as we see in the New Testament. Not only were we commissioned, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded, Matthew 28. But he says in Acts 1, just wait until the Spirit of God comes upon you so that you will be my witnesses. 
we also get the commissioning and the anointing that Jesus has now fulfilled. He passes on to us and he calls us to do the same in the world. This is a really powerful reality. We are now called to speak the words of truth to, God, to the people. We have been commissioned and we are called to represent God to a world that needs to see him. This is a pretty remarkable responsibility. This is on, on my shoulders every day as I go out into the world. This is on my shoulders as I try to lead my children and represent God to my children. And I confess I fail many, many times. Here's a picture uh, of a, a moment that I had with my kids. We, we do this thing called walk every morning. It's just our, our walk with God. We look at the word. Um, and we ask some questions and answer some questions. But this particular passage that we went through was so beautiful to hear my kids say this. Uh, it was on Psalm 139, verse 2. And uh, the, that's the word that we look at. The, the A is for paying attention. What does this mean? What does the scripture mean in essence? Uh, these are two pictures. The one is from one of my sons and the other one is from the other one. You can see who's the creative artist and you can see who's, who's the line upon line kind of let's go through it. Um, anyway... The attention, the questions we asked basically came down to this, under, next to the A. Because God knows everything, we, we looked at the omniscience of God. God knows everything. We looked at the omniscience of God. Because God knows everything, He can love me no matter what we do. I was so astounded at that. That means, as you can see on the picture on the right, there's a little crossbones, a bomb, a knife, there's, there's, there's money pouches as if that means stealing money. That's what the picture represents. Basically, the revelation was no matter what I do, if I do any of these things, because God already knows it, he still loves me. I was just, I was just amazed at the revelation. And what that did to my heart as we went through that was, we get to represent this God to the world. We get to love people. We get to love people no matter what they do and represent God to them. We get to speak his truth, his words, and we get to paint a picture of a better reality that is much better, I confess, than a politician's claim to make America great again. You and I, have been commissioned by God. You and I get to speak the words of God. As you go out, the Spirit of God is on you to speak the truth in your marketplace, to speak the truth of God's word, to pray for people who are sick and see them healed. The Spirit of God is on us. But I confess we still live as if there is a great divide. We still live as if we cannot do that yet, and yet Jesus was completely sufficient for us to do that. There is a way life ought to be, Jesus, yet it is not so. Jesus was completely sufficient to bridge that divide, and he now lives in you and in I so that others may experience the very nature of God. 
I want us to just for a moment sit in that reality. Just sit and think upon the beauty of what God has done. One, that you have access to his reality. That Jesus was completely sufficient for you to know God. If you are far from God today, if you feel like you are far from him, if you're just going, God, it feels to me like there is still a chasm between us. I just want to invite you today to receive what Jesus did for us on the cross, his sufficiency. Just come up for prayer afterwards. There'll be people ready to pray for you. Just ask. Just say, God, come near to me again. Spirit of God, come and fall upon me again. Draw me unto you again. That is the promise that he has made for us. That is the access that he has given to us. And then secondly, to contemplate the reality that you and I can go out onto the streets and we can go, There is a way that life ought to be. I know life doesn't always work out that way, but we have the truth. We know the message. We know how. Come with us. Can I pray for you? Can I seek you? And actually expect God to do things as we go. Let's take a few seconds just to reflect on those things, and then we'll pray for the communion table. The musicians will come up so long and get us ready. Take a few moments and just reflect in your own heart as to the privilege we have and the responsibility we have. So we get to represent God uh, to a world who desperately needs to see God as he is. And in 1 John, God is described as this, God is love. That is just a remarkable understanding of who God is. His very nature is love. That means every time that we love, every time that we love, whether it's somebody really near to us, like a spouse, or whether it's a stranger on the street. Every single time we love, we are, we are letting people taste of the divine nature of God. Every time that happens. Every time my wife Lisa loves me, I, I am experiencing something of the nature of God within that interaction. God is love. And the way that we love is important and beautiful. And so as we take part in this incredible table, um, I'm going to leave us with a picture of, of what this, so you, you might have heard this before, but in the, um, in the Jewish culture, um, there, there used to be uh, this practice of courting and falling in love and getting married that was accepted. Uh, and the way that somebody... Um, it's, it's too long to go through it all. I'm just going to give you one aspect. The way that you got asked um, to, if, if you were uh, a lady, and you got asked to get engaged, the way that you got asked was not but with a big diamond ring in a romantic spot overlooking the whole of Manhattan. 
It didn't work. It was, that was not what was being created. How it was created was you were normally at a feast. It was very spontaneous. Nobody knew necessarily when it was going to happen. And it was as simple as this. It was the groom-to-be taking a cup of wine and sliding it across the table with everybody watching, no pressure, sliding it across the table. And that meant that if she took it, and took a sip of the wine, it was the acceptance of the invitation to get married. It was a powerful symbol, it was very tangible, and it was very real. And sometimes we forget that when Jesus gave us this meal, it actually symbolized that very invitation. It symbolized him sliding the cup across the table and saying, will you drink of it? And his whole ministry represented the courtship of that, that was the Jewish courtship processing, the feast that's about to come. You read about the feast in Revelation. And as you come this morning, I wonder if you would approach it with that understanding, that the invitation this morning lands like this. Would you take my invitation to be loved? Will you take, will you participate in my invitation to receive my very nature, which is the nature of love. And then as you take it, there is an echo within the commissioning that he's done for us. Will you go and do the same in your marketplace? Will you just go and love people in the same way that Christ loved us, giving himself up for us? Will you love your wife that way? Would you love the outcast and the marginalized that way? But first we receive the cup. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup again, and he took the bread again, and he said, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you. This is how you enter in, this is how you receive. And so as you come this morning, I'm inviting you not to receive dry crackers and juice or wine, whatever that is. I am inviting you to receive the love of God poured out for you and for me. Would you pray with me? God, as we look at this representation of your sacrifice, as we understand what you have done for us and the invitation that you have given us, I pray that we would actually, tangibly experience your love this morning, that we would notice you speaking over us that you did all of this, Jesus. You became the persecuted prophet. <clears throat> you came into this world so that we would know who you are, God, so that we would understand you and know you better and so that we could live in this new reality of what life ought to be. We receive your love this morning, God, and we ask that you help us again and you commission us again to do the same, to go and show your love to the world out there. Come and speak to us, we pray. Amen. Why don't you come up when you're ready?